Hello, listeners, and welcome to my very first podcast, Keep in the Koopa Loop. I'm very excited to be recording this podcast, not only because I'm speaking about topics that I'm passionate about, but because I was able to be a tech nerd and actually figure out how to record a podcast and upload it correctly. This first podcast will be talking about the research I found on differences in mental health between athletes in different divisions of the NCAA, which is referred to as the National Collegiate Athletic Association for those who are not familiar. The three different as- or the three different levels of sports um, competition are Division One, Division Two, and Division Three. To make it simple, you can think of Division One athletic programs pertaining to big universities such as the University of Minnesota or the University of Wisconsin Madison. Division three programs are the smaller state schools, such as the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire or Gustavus Davis Adolphus College in Minnesota, while division two schools are right in between those two levels. Unfortunately, the majority of research concerning mental health in college athletes only focuses on division one athletes, or in other words, athletes who are performing at the most elite level in college. That being said, it's difficult to compare mental health differences among the three divisions since the bulk of research relates to Division I athletes, but luckily I am a fellow Division III athlete, so I can elaborate on some of my experiences with mental health while competing in an individual sport for all four years of my college career. Despite the lack of research, I was um, still able to find a few articles that pertain to mental health differences in D1, D2, and D3 athletes. I will be discussing some basic matters about balance in mental health in D1 athletes, how elite athletes outside the United States respond to total mood disturbance questionnaires in the midst of their competitive season, how mental toughness and self-compassion levels differ among athletes participating at each division level, and lastly, what the availability of mental health services looks like according to head athletic trainers at Division I universities. So, having said that, let me get started with a systematic review on the balance of mental health and NCAA Division I student-athletes. This article is a fairly recent item published just last year in 2020 by Patrick Whitehead and Gary Senecal. In essence, the authors describe mental health by using an existential humanistic view, or in other words, describing the significance that sport has to the student-athlete as a whole person. They also detail a performance-centric mindset and discover three problems with this approach. The three problems they explain involve health and well-being, development, and the balance between sports, school, and social life. In relation to health and well-being, on page 152 of this article, there are a few quotes by Jean-Marie Brome that are included, one of which is, in quotes, um, suffering in sport has today reached truly inhuman proportions, end quote. A little harsh, yes, but actually kind of true when you think about it. Consider how sports have evolved in today's society and the level of perfection that is expected out of athletes, even those who are only high schoolers and haven't reached their full potential yet. Athletes are being pushed, they're being pressured, and even yelled at by many coaches and even their parents because they are expected to be the best in their league, their state, or even their country. Although an athlete's skills, performance, and mastery of their sport is truly incredible and their achievements are applaudable, there is, there is still fatigue, soreness, lethargy, 
pain, hunger, irritability, and anxiety that come along with pushing your body to the extreme. The authors go on to say that in terms of health, a performance-centric mindset is seen as a negative aspect in a student-athlete's life, since they're the ones wanting to continuously progress and improve in their sport without taking into account what it means to be healthy. More specifically, athletes have a tendency to, in quote, cheat the balancing act, meaning they cut their recovery time short, resulting in fatigue, sore muscles, dehydration, and so on. Personally, I can definitely relate to this because even if I take care of my body by eating healthy and staying hydrated, I either won't get enough sleep nor will I stretch, thus making me even more tired and sore than I already am. It is argued that athletes need to learn how to effectively maintain their health and well-being while also performing with their best efforts so we can avoid further quotes from Jean-Marie Brome stating that sports suffering is reaching inhuman proportions. The balance of the body and staying healthy relates to the balance between sports, school, and social life. The main question in this section is, how can student-athletes balance the demand of their sport, the classes they are taking, and their social lives? Especially at the D1 level, where practices, competition, and expectations can be so extreme, I was intrigued to read about how they interpreted student-athletes to balance these aspects, if they are able to balance any. Essentially, Whitehead and Seneca argue that no balance is the best balance, meaning if the student athlete hasn't experienced all three of these aspects working, working together nicely, they haven't experienced a right balance yet, if that makes sense. Rather, balancing should be viewed as the importance of the athlete themselves finding their own balance instead of others trying to implement a stable life for them. And I think we can see a lot um, from parents regarding this, trying to hold their expectations high. Balancing a social life, school, and their sport is not universal, and it varies from person to person, so there shouldn't be any label or expectation on what is considered a good or right balance. The authors also included a section in which they suggest ways to facilitate balance for these D1 athletes. For example, Whitehead and Seneca exemplify the humanistic approach and share that student athletes need to be kept in the center, taking into account their health and well-being instead of being pushed to the side and having the priority be the NCAA, building the best D1 programs, concerns with collecting revenue and maintaining fans, you get the gist. It is quite easy to forget about who or what should actually be prioritized first because with many Division I universities, the focus isn't so much on the athlete, but rather the revenue and the reputation, especially the rep reputation of the athletic program. My favorite quote from this article comes from the first sentence of the last paragraph, where they state, and quote, student athletes must also be treated like whole multifaceted persons, end quote. This quote corresponds with many of the other articles I've read in the way that elite athletes are also capable of experiencing mental illnesses, and they too um, need mental health services. Sadly, they are sometimes seen as just an athlete whose life is only revolved around sports, and they are not considered as a whole complex person who is capable of balancing and experiencing what non-athletes feel. I think Whitehead and Seneca's article is a great warm-up to understanding the mental health of collegiate student athletes because it introduces ideas about the importance of balance, health, and well-being of the athlete and how complex these aspects can get when they're all jumbled together. 
Although we're just getting started on analyzing college athletes' mental health in the United States, I'd like to jump to a different country in order to examine the mental health levels in elite athletes overseas. I actually found an article by Rachel Sheehan and her other colleagues, um, Matthew Herring and Mark Campbell, that was published back in 2018 that discusses mental health and motivations in elite athletes in Ireland who participate in what's called the Gaelic Games. Gaelic Games are hosted in Ireland, and in this study specifically, four teams within one university were recruited in order to represent the four codes of the Gaelic Games. These four codes um, are football, ladies football, hurling, and kamoji. However, the kamoji team could not participate in the study, so I won't even go into what that sport actually is because I'm not quite sure myself. According to the text, it is not uncommon for athletes to play two codes of Gaelic games with overlapping seasons due to the lack of an official off-season. Moreover, the teams were categorized as semi-elite, which means their level of participation is below the top standard in their sport. So, in other words, they are very good athletes, and there is often an expectation for these athletes to play for the university, their club, and their region with little time off. Anyways, now that we have some background knowledge on what Gaelic games are, let me dive into what the study was about and why it's important. Essentially, the researchers measured total mood disturbance, depressive symptoms, sleep quality, anxiety symptoms, and motivation across 13 weeks to test how these symptoms changed throughout the competitive season. At week one, 37% of athletes reported scores that indicated mild to moderate depression. However, that decreased to 11% at week 13. Additionally, at week one, 32% of athletes were categorized as poor sleepers, but that also decreased um, to 26% at week 13. And across the season, there were significant improvements in total mood disturbance, depressive symptoms, and sleep quality. However, non-significant improvements in anxiety symptoms. Interestingly enough, it is noted in this article that over 65% of American university students were found to be poor sleepers in comparison with about 33% of these elite athletes at the start of their season. Obviously, we can't jump to the conclusion that about two-thirds of American collegiate athletes are poor sleepers, even though I won't be surprised, because I haven't read any studies about sleeping habits in American collegiate athletes, but I just found it interesting um, to compare American student athletes with Irish athletes in this aspect. Lastly, there were no significant findings and change of anxiety symptoms across the season, which I believe I already mentioned a minute ago, actually. But what about motivation? Well, it is supported that there are adaptive motivational patterns among this group of elite student athletes with intrinsic motivation slightly exceeding extrinsic motivation. The authors note that despite these findings, it does not indicate that intrinsic motivation completely dominates the current sample. Instead, they concluded on the idea that extrinsic and intrinsic motivation was found um, was both found among these successful teams, indicating that challenges, victories, and competition during a 13-week season strengthens many athletes' motivational levels. So what can we conclude from this article then? Well, first, it seems that sleep quality, depressive symptoms, and total mood disturbance significantly improved throughout the 13-week competitive season. 
Generally speaking, there is really no surprise here, considering there are many studies um, that have been done that links exercise with a more positive well-being. However, this finding indicates that elite student-athletes also experience better mental health during a season that is filled with a lot of competition. This is something I found particularly thought-provoking, I would say, because I'm comparing these results to my own personal experience of having a tennis season being overloaded with matches. For example, the most recent tennis season that I just had was filled with so much competition and traveling I could not wait to be done. I'm a generally happy person, but during some weeks when I had more than two matches um, and having to travel at least an hour away, I would become so stressed and exhausted that I would consider myself, I would consider my total mood disturbance levels to be um, pretty below average. Additionally, I do not think that myself and many of my fellow teammates would consider their sleep quality to improve throughout the tennis season, especially when the end of season is nearing because at that point we are all burnt out. But I think this specific finding could spark up a lot of research about the relationship between student-athlete and sleep adequacy if there aren't already studies about this. Granted, there are some limitations with their findings, such as the small sample size, which was only 45 student-athletes, and the fact that this study was done in Ireland at the so-called Gaelic Games, but their findings about total mood disturbance and depressive symptoms are pretty consistent with some findings from other studies I've read, which is always important to consider. This next article, titled, Can Athletes Be Tough Yet Compassionate to Themselves?, is a great resource to refer to when you want to learn more about self-compassion and mental toughness and how one affects the other and how they work together. This study was done by Andreas Dematis along with many others um, back just a couple months ago actually in December of 2020. To clarify, mental toughness is perceived as having a machismo mentality and is predicted as a key element in constant performance and consistent thriving. Self-compassion, on the other hand, is known as having self-kindness and arresting self-objectification and social comparison when facing setbacks. These two aspects might seem contradictory to one another, but in reality, they share many commonalities and have both been shown to correlate with mental health outcomes, such as eliminating mental health stigma. Remarkably, this was an experiment that included 542 NCAA student-athletes from all three NCAA divisions. The researchers had um, six different hypotheses and explained the results for each outcome, which I would like to share. First, they found that mental toughness and mental health, self-compassion and mental health, and self-compassion and mental toughness are all positively correlated with one another. This means, essentially, that having higher levels of mental toughness and self-compassion predict better mental health in athletes. This is not a startling finding to me at all, and I actually feel like it's pretty universal to say that having more self-compassion and being mentally tough will correspond with better mental health. Next, males scored higher in all three of these categories. For example, on the self-compassion scale, males scored significantly higher on self-judgment, with their score being 3.1, while females scored 2.7. Keep in mind that the subcomponents on the self-compassion scale were scored on a range from 1, almost never, to 5, almost always, when they're asked to respond to each statement. 
Um, so like I said again, males scored 3.1, which is right in the middle, and females scored 2.7, which is a little bit below um, the mean. The most interesting findings, in my opinion, was that D1 athletes did not score higher in mental toughness, self-compassion, and mental health. In fact, there is a bit of variance between the different divisions. On the mental toughness scale, it is said that the higher scores correspond with better mental health. Division 1 athletes scored 45.5, Division 2 athletes scored 46.7, and Division 3 athletes scored 45.4. Moreover, on the mental health scale, D1 athletes scored 49.6, D2 athletes scored 48.6, and D3 athletes scored 51.4. Since this podcast is technically directed at the differences between D1, D2, and D3 athletes, I'd like to expand on this finding a little more. Um, honestly, I am a little bit conflicted in how I feel about interpreting these results. At one end, I would expect mental toughness scores to be higher among D1 athletes over athletes from NCAA divisions, um, the other ones, D2 and D3, since there is more pressure and higher expectations to perform well. Additionally, since D1 athletes are performing at the most elite collegiate level, I feel like they need to put on a front um, almost and be mentally tough to prove they are the incredible athletes out of the rest of the NCAA divisions. However, based off the results, D2 athletes had the highest level of mental toughness compared to the other groups, and D1 and D3 athletes scored nearly identical scores. Don't get me wrong, I am no expert in understanding the minds of every athlete performing at elite levels, but that is um, just what my opinion is about who I would expect to be more mentally tough. Lastly, the mental health scores between these athletes did not surprise me too much. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, D3 athletes were the ones to score the highest on the mental health scale, but now D2 athletes are the ones to score the lowest of the three groups. Do you find it interesting that D2 athletes scored higher on mental, mental toughness scales yet lowest on the mental health scales? That finding just struck me as a little unusual. However, it was not surprising to me that D3 athletes scored highest because as a fellow D3 um, D3 athlete, there is not nearly as much pressure compared to what D2 and D1 athletes might experience. Um, there's no athletic scholarship that's holding D3 athletes accountable. I feel like D3 athletes have less pressure of maintaining their reputation compared to what a D1 football player has to uphold. For example, you get the gist of what I'm trying to say here. The last thing I'd like to mention about this article is that mindfulness was a key connector between mental toughness and self-compassion. This goes along with what many other articles say about mental health and well-being, which is how important mindfulness is and how that should be used to help athletes improve their mental health. It was found in the study that mindfulness is fundamental in increasing both mental toughness and self-compassion. And in general, mindfulness should be used to build skills in both of these aspects. I think when it comes down to comparing D1, D2, and D3 athletes, mindfulness is again an important skill to teach all athletes performing at all levels since it improves mental toughness and self-compassion.
The real question is, though, how can mindfulness be implemented in every athletic program? And even if it is taught, will that really make a difference in mental in, in scores and mental toughness, mental health, and self-compassion between these athletes performing at different levels and if this study were replicated? Just a thought to think about. The last article that I will be talking about to conclude podcast number one is Laura Sudano and Christopher Miles' article published in 2017 about the availability of mental health services in D1 athletes. Instead of surveying the student athletes directly, they actually surveyed the head athletic trainers at 336 NCAA Division I universities. Well, actually, that's how many universities they reached out to, but the total number of participants was 127, which is still a significant amount to me. The good news is 98% of the participants stated that student-athletes do indeed have an option to receive mental health care. And they noted that over half of the mental health clinicians are located in the Student Counseling Center, 20.5% were located in the athletic training room, 18.1% in the campus athletic department, but 17.3% were off-site. That last statistic, 17.3% of mental health clinicians being located off-site, is particularly concerning to me because how and why would other college students take the time to go off-site to seek a mental health practitioner since it is not accessible on campus? And especially if they don't have cars, it can't really be very difficult um, for them to go off-site to a mental health clinic. Anyways, there is one finding that I was surprised by, if not slightly concerned from the study. Just over half of the participants indicated that they were satisfied with the feedback from mental health clinicians about the student athletes' mental health. I'm gonna state that again. Just over half, 58%, stated that they were satisfied with the feedback from mental health clinicians about the student athletes' mental health. I don't know about you, but I was concerned when I read this. This means that over 40% of the participants were not satisfied with the feedback coming from mental health clinicians. Obviously, I cannot assume that these universities have horrible mental health services for athletes, but I think it's okay to question why so many participants in the study were not satisfied with the feedback coming from mental health providers. I also can't assume that athletic trainers are equipped to accurately understanding mental health issues among student athletes, but speaking from experience, if you have an ongoing injury, you spend the majority of time before and after practices with your athletic trainer. Thus, the more time you spend with your athletic trainer, the more comfortable you may feel and the more information you feel comfortable disclosing with them. In addition to this argument, athletic trainers were asked if they used screening instruments to assess student athletes for mental health issues, and only 42.5% indicated that yes, they had used screening instruments. Doesn't this alarm you as well? At the NCAA Division I level, where competition, expectations, pressures, overtraining, and so on can get so extreme at the elite level, less than half are using screening instruments to assess for mental health issues. Although it could seem tedious or unnecessary for the student athlete to complete, 
I think it would be so important and essential to provide screening instruments to try and find potential issues in mental health before it gets severe or before it's too late. I apologize for my small tangent, and granted, this is just one study, and things could have definitely changed since this article was published back in 2017, but I'm just concerned that student-athletes, especially those competing at the D1 level, are not getting the resources they need to maintain their mental health. As a quick overview, there are many similarities yet differences in what D1, D2, and D3 athletes experience with their mental health and well-being. For one, it's important for student-athletes participating at each level to find a balance that fits them best. Coming from my personal experience, life gets very overwhelming when trying to balance school, work, sports, a social life, keeping up with other relationships, and the list goes on. However, despite how overwhelming life can get, it's still shown from Sheehan's article that depressive symptoms, sleep quality, and total mood disturbance improves as the competitive season continues. These specific aspects of mental health also correspond with mental toughness and self-compassion, meaning that student-athletes who have higher levels of mental toughness and self-compassion will have more positive mental health outcomes. And to improve mental toughness and self-compassion, mindfulness is a great tool to teach and to use, and that goes for all athletes competing at all NCAA divisions. And finally, whether or not an athlete wants to see a mental health practitioner if they are experiencing problems with their mental health, almost all of them have the option to receive support through their university. So with that being said, podcast one of Keeping the Koopa Loop is complete, and we are ready to move on to our next topic, gender and team differences in sport. Thanks for listening.